uh, one of the pitfalls that sequential expositional preaching keeps pastors like me from falling into is preaching only texts that I'm comfortable with or covering topics that I'm simply passionate about. Uh, the portion of Exodus that we're going to be in today is about one topic that uh, actually is avoided by most. It's not commonly preached today because part of the point of the ten plagues, especially the three plagues we will cover today, is to demonstrate to us the severity of God's justice against sin. The severity of God's justice against sin. Specifically the sin of pride. The ultimate judgment against sin is eternity spent in a completely torturous and dark environment. Isolated. Only left with our thoughts of what might have been or what scripture also refers to as hell. We'll see in the structure and nature of the first nine plagues the escalating nature of their severity. The fullness of this escalation culminates now in the ninth plague with Egypt being plunged into darkness as though all of Egypt, Pharaoh is included, has been put into the grave. During our last service, and Doug preached for us and helped us see that the first six plagues that God uh, that is about how God is a perfect judge over all the earth. He is indeed a holy judge, a powerful judge, a complete and universal judge, as Moses reveals to Egypt, to Israel, and now to us. And since God, and since our God is such an awesome God, and judge, fitting to the story, he will enact sufficient, exact, and perfect judgment against all he judges. Today, in these plagues, we will see how God rightly judged Pharaoh and Egypt for their stubbornness of pride. So the main point that I want you to walk away to today with is that God judges prideful men with destruction death, and darkness. This may not be the Sunday sermon you showed up to hear for here this morning, but that's where we are in the text. All right? So if you have a copy of God's Word, I ask you to open it up now to Exodus 9, starting in verse 13. If you're using one of the uh, Bibles in the pews around you, that, that text can be found on page 51. It's also going to be behind me. Now, I'm going to do the best job I can. I'm not going to read all of 9.13 to 10.29, okay? It'll simply take too much time, and you guys don't listen fast enough. <clears throat> <clears throat> hey, look, I'm just getting started, brother. I'm just getting started. So I'm going to read selected text from the passage, okay? And I'm going to do my best to keep you where I am, okay? All right, so look at God's word. Starting in verse 9, chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. 
For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show my power, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Behold, at this time tomorrow... I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such that has never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Skip down to 22, 9.22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the heavens, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. And then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. Skip to 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord. For these, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, As soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail. So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you have not yet feared the Lord. Skip down to 10.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the, and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs and my, of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Verse 3. Chapter 10, so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country that they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to, to you after the hail. That they shall eat the tree of yours that grows in the field. That they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all the Egyptians. As neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on the earth to this day. And then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's servants in verse 7 of chapter 10 said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let, let, the, let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? Moses and Aaron were then brought back into, the, into Pharaoh's palace. And we go down to 10, 11. 
And Pharaoh says, no, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and every plant in the land and all that the hail had left. And Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought the east wind upon the land all that day and night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up all over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such that a dense swarm of locusts had never been before, nor even will be again. They covered the face of the whole land. Does that not sound like a flood of locusts? A flood of judgment? So that the land was darkened, that they may... That, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant in the field throughout all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin Please, oh, only this one time forgive my sin and plead with the Lord your God only to remove death from me. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the heavens that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt and darkness, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the heaven and there was pitch black darkness. In all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another. Nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And then Pharaoh called Moses and said. Go serve the Lord. You, your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said. You must also let us sacrifice. You, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord God until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not let them go. Let us pray. Oh, Father God. As we recount this story. This morning in the presence of. Our church members in the presence of your people. The story continues. That you are a mighty and powerful God. You are an amazing God. You are a God who judges wickedness. God, help us see and understand what you are doing through these plagues. Help us participate in the purpose of these plagues and signs and wonders. That we might tell our children and our grandchildren about how mighty and amazing you are. Father God. We cannot see and we cannot understand without your help. 
please come and help us. Open our eyes that we might see. Prepare our hearts that we might gain understanding and bear fruit from your text. And God, may our ears hear what you have to say to us this morning. May I die. May there be less of Thomas Hudson in this pulpit. And may there be much about who you are and what you're up to in Egypt, in our lives today, and on into the generations that will come after us. We praise you, God. We ask for and beg for your help at this time. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Now, for many of us, we're jumping all the way into the last, or the, the seventh, eighth, and ninth plague. So we need to do a little bit of homework here to take a step back and understand both the structure and the intent of the plagues. Doug, again, pointed out to us last week that the first nine plagues actually exist in triplets. So you have the first three plagues, water to blood, gnats and flies in plagues one to three. Then you have the next three plagues, four to six, frogs, dead livestock, and boils. And then you have the, this last three of the first nine, the hail, the locust, and the darkness. Now, the way that these, uh, the way that the text and the way that Moses wrote these that show that they have, they're, they're similar, they, they have similar features in each one of them. Each of the plagues that start the triplets, so plague one, four, and seven, actually happen in the morning. So, or, or, or Pharaoh is warned about them in the morning. Notice back with me in verse 13. What does it say? Go to Pharaoh or, and, and say to him, uh, I'm sorry, 913, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. That's common in the first three uh, of each of the triplets. Then in the second of the plagues, two, five, and eight occurs. They actually happen in the court of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's on his, likely on his throne around his counselors, and that's where Moses and Aaron have conversations and warn him about those plagues. And then the last plague of each triplet commences without warning. There's no warning given to Pharaoh or Egypt about what is about to happen. It simply just happens. Another feature to their structure is the sequential nature. I mean, yes, I think we all understand plague four follows plague three. But the but the consider what is happening at one right as one, each of these plays happen one right after the other, even th taking to the, them together in triplets, there is an escalating order of severity to the plagues. The first three introduce irritation. Now I'm sure that any of you who have spent time in a hot kitchen or a little bit further south in Fredericksburg, Virginia has experienced the irritation of flies and gnats, even as in the same number as the Egyptians did at times. Um, I was raised in South Georgia, and there are gnats in South Georgia. Okay? Uh, the second set of the plagues, though, brings about destruction. So you move from irritation to destruction. And then, in the final triplet, the plagues actually culminate in death. A death-like experience where all of Egypt is plunged in the darkness as, as though they have been buried, completely isolated from one another. And then, in the darkness, there in the darkness, they are left only to their thoughts 
and the palpable felt darkness that surrounds them. Nothing, noting also that that the darkness like death comes without warning. Did any of us wake up today and get a pink slip of when our last day will be? No. Neither did Egypt. Death comes without warning. There is a judgment day awaiting all of us. Then, in the structure and the purpose of the Psalms, many have discovered, as they've read God's word in Exodus, that there is a great purpose and intent and aim to the plagues, reaching their near crescendo in these last three. The purpose of these plagues is seen in the last three plagues in verse, nine, in, in verse 14 of chapter 9. Look there again with me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself, on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in the earth. This is the great revelation of a mighty and powerful God. This means that the scope and force of God's omnipotent or all-powerful nature were beyond all human comparison. God has made himself known as the most powerful God, like no God in all the earth. So since we have this good idea of structure, the triplets, and the aim now that God is revealing himself as the all-powerful God, Let us look to see how God judges prideful men, specifically Pharaoh and his counselors, with destruction, death, and darkness in the third set of plagues. So look there with me in 9, 13 to 35 in plague number 7, the hailstorm. Now, you're there in 9, 13, but jump over to 10, 7. This is after the hailstorm. This is what the counselors of of Pharaoh say to him in 10.7. Then Pharaoh's servant said to them, How long shall these men be a snare to us? Let them go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not know, do you not understand, Pharaoh, that Egypt is in ruin? Destruction and ruin is the nature of Egypt after the never-before-experienced hailstorm which killed uh, trees and crops remaining livestock and servants alike. In the devastating nature of the, this exceptional hailstorm, Egypt looked, took a severe blow to their GDP. Note the detail there in 931. Look at 931. In parentheses, Moses writes, the flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. The flax and the barley were ruined in the hail. Flax seed was used in Egypt to make linen fiber. The textile industry in Egypt was a booming industry because linen was a preferred fabric in the region. And then the barley was the Egyptian commodity used for bread making and in the microbrewing industry. This destruction of these crops would have been a severe 
blow to the economic security Egypt experienced as a nation. So destruction is all around. And then death. Look at plague 8 in 10, 10, 1 to 20. What does Pharaoh say about this plague after it happens in, uh, in um, 10, 17? 10, 17, Pharaoh says, Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once. Plead with the Lord your God to remove this death from me. He didn't understand it when his counselors came to him and said, do you, not under, do you not get what's happening, Pharaoh? God is ruining our country. We're in ruin. Let them go. Get them out of here. We got a chance. We still got wheat in the ground. But the locusts come. And the land is stripped bare. Any green, any semblance of green, any seed in the ground that might bear fruit has been eaten by the locust. Because there was some hope in 932 that if Pharaoh repented of his pride, that there was possibly a future economic stability if the wheat and the emer were allowed to sprout. But Pharaoh, what does he do? He remains unrepentant in his sin and hardens his heart when in 10.11, he would only let the men leave the women. That, that's what that means in 10.11. So what happens here in this second plague is uh, Moses and Aaron are like, we've all got to leave. Because the purpose of all of what God is doing here is that we can tell your story to our children and our grandchildren. And then it seems like Moses or that Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let everybody go. But no, no. Only the men folk can go. But the children had to stay behind in Egypt. Recall, God called all of his people out of Egypt so that he could teach their sons and their grandsons what God did in Egypt. God planned that Israel would tell the powerful story of who he is and how mighty he is from generation to generation, just like we sang earlier. Only having to, the men and the women leave Egypt to serve the Lord was unacceptable to God and to Moses. So the locusts came and destroyed any hope the Egyptians had in their agricultural futures. The futures market was plummeting. And Pharaoh, because of the pride in the idol of economic prosperity and because of God's divine purpose to demonstrate his power over him, Egypt is plunged into death and nearly is wiped off the face of the planet. The stubbornness of one man, one king. But it's not over. Plague 9, the darkness, 10, 21 to 29. Then even when Moses asked God to end the plague of the locust, Pharaoh hardens his heart again and says, you will not leave this place. 
He refuses to allow, to allow anyone, not the children, not the men, not the women, not the livestock, to leave and go and worship God, that, that, that Israel might serve God. And the immediate response, without warning, to the hard-hearted, unyielding Pharaoh comes without warning. Like I said, Egypt is plunged into a terrifying darkness that can actually be, what does 21 say? It can be felt. I mean, I've been in some dark places. I don't know if I've been in darkness that can be felt. But, but I won't deny that there may be some of you sitting in here that feel like you're in darkness that is felt. And it may be not because you're prideful and sinful. It may be because people have sinned against you. But what we know here about Pharaoh is he feels this darkness because he's been prideful. He's been stubborn. He's been obstinate to the Lord. The Egyptians and Pharaoh were not, only near, were not only nearly dead economically, but now they can't even move about, conversate with one another, or per perform typical daily tasks. And it lasted for three days. Right. Let's practice this. Right. We're going to be, be quiet for three days, okay? You ready? Ready, set, go. And nobody wants to do that. I can't even last three seconds. Three days of silence. Similar, what did Moses ask Pharaoh to do? Let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we might worship and serve our God. And with destruction from hell and death of economic prosperity and now darkness so heavy that no one could rise from where they stayed as though Egypt has now been put into the grave. In all honesty, this is what every prideful, rebellious heart and soul of man deserves, let alone the darkness we deserve death. Each and every one of us deserves economic poverty. Each and every one of us deserve the rightful wage of death for every act of prideful sin and rebellion against God and his ways. Each of us deserve the right, I mean, sorry, our sin and the sins against the infinitely holy God deserve an eternity in the pit of hell. Do you not understand? Doug, Doug laid it out really good for us last week. If I go outside and I kick a mangy dog on the street, like no one's probably going to say anything about that to me. Maybe some PETA people, but not many people. If I go outside and I punch the housing authority person sitting in their car, like something's going to happen. If I go and knock on the door of our sitting president and I try to harm him, well, it ain't going to end well. That's right. We have sinned against a holy, infinite, holy, and pure God. That deserves an eternity in hell. Unless you think hell is some bearable, finite, acceptable alternative 
to humility and repentance and a continual of flirting and seeming control that you have over your sin, you are dreadfully and pridefully wrong. Let me l- listen to that. Because I don't think we think well about, about hell. It is not a bearable place. It is not finite. It is not an acceptable alternative to what God is calling you into. And if we think like that, it shows that we are completely ignorant of who God is. If we think like that, It shows that we have a very, very skewed view of ourselves. That we would deserve something else. Let's be clear. Hell is psychologically and spiritually absolutely unbearable. It will be a place of abject darkness. Where you are only left to your thoughts. You can do nothing but think. You're going to have thoughts of remorse for missed opportunities. You're going to have memories of friends and family that you knew. And concern for those that, we, that you love. Whose eternal destiny you impacted. And guess what? There will be no distraction. Or entertainment. There's no football game. There's no basketball game. There's no golf match. To drown out the terrors and the strong pains of our consciences working against us. There will be no pleasant company to soothe our pain. And the sense of being separated from everyone and everything will be absolutely and stunningly palpable. You will feel it. And on top of Hell being psychologically and spiritually unbearable, it will also be physically unbearable. It is so physically unbearable, just like we saints who have been saved by the grace of God could not stand in on our own without resurrected bodies in the presence of the glory of God. Those who do not repent of their sins and spend eternity in hell will need resurrected bodies to withstand the wrath of God for eternity. The living and the dead will be resurrected. The the sheep and the goats will be separated. And what we see in the judgment of Pharaoh and Egypt is that God will judge and condemn prideful humanity to an eternity experiencing His wrath. But I've got good news. It doesn't stop there. We serve and worship a merciful God. A merciful God who does not gleefully and send the sinner to hell, but joyfully and lovingly springs prideful men and women from their slavish snare to the devil. The God who makes dead sinners raised from the grave. 
in Christ Jesus. Yes, you are dead in your trespasses and sin, pride, stubborn rebellion against God. But God is rich in mercy for those who call upon the Lamb of God. The Messiah who was physically destroyed and humiliated with a crown of thorns and 39 lashes of the cat of nine tails and then hung on a wretched tree. You can know this God of mercy if you look to the Lamb of God who was slain for sinful man. You can know this God of mercy. This Messiah, this Christ, the light of the world that was plunged into the grave for three days. Jesus Christ, the Jesus of Nazareth, is the one who has borne the death your prideful heart deserves, and he can be trusted and clung to today. He is the one worthy of your pursuit in repentance, killing and fleeing from your sin, running into his outstretched arms. And you can know this Savior today. You can know our merciful God. You can repent of your pride. You can be healed from your obstinance and rebellion. I simply want to ask you, friends. What is God telling you to die to or let go of and repent of today? What is God asking you to die to, let go of, or repent of today? Today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day that you know the God of mercy. And so what does all this mean for us, like right here and right now? I have a couple of points of application. God wants to kill pride in you. God wants to kill pride in you. And I ask that you would work with God to kill pride in you. That he does not have to deal with you harshly. Bring you low like he humbled the nation of Egypt. Humiliated Pharaoh and, prov- and provided or proved God, Egypt's idols to be impotent. Pride shows up in our lives primarily in two ways. First, you just have to be outright boastful. The one who holds themselves alone in high regard before God and men. Boastful boastful people think much of themselves. They're puffed up and they think less of others. The other end of the spectrum is of pride is a thing called false humility. We don't talk about this a lot. I actually think it's a big problem. Because false humility shows up when we have an overly concerned eye on ourselves by continually being self-deprecating, self-loathing, and harboring in ourselves a continual spirit of low self-esteem. Who's that all about? You. Another way we express false humility in our lives is that we continually feel inferior to others. As though the person sitting beside you didn't get up and put their pants on the same way you did this morning. 
We are just men. I'm a member of this church just like every other member of this church. I sit in no special place. I've only been given a special privilege and responsibility to teach God's word to his people. I think one of the most palpable ways that this is seen in our culture is how we either, when, when, we, when we have this inferior view to others, of ourselves to others, it shows up when we covet or envy their insta life or falsely exalt men and women for their faithfulness and godliness. Our aim as God's people is to neither be boastful of self nor trash and devalue ourselves. You are not to boast much about who you are and you are not to devalue yourself as though you were not created in the image of the Almighty God. God is calling us to true humility, where we are not arrogant and boastful. We're ready to give of our time and our talents and our treasures for the good of one another and the good of the church. To think rightly, humility calls us to think rightly about ourselves, not to have a skewed view of who we are before God and men, so what, what if you gave your spouse as much credit and grace that you give yourself? What if you loved a low-ranking poolie like you love yourself and your own rank? Another clear evidence of the type of humility that God calls us to is having a teachable heart or a teachable spirit. As seen in, look, look back with me at, nine, at Exodus 9, 20 and 21. What does it say there? After this warning happens, 9, 20 and 21. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. There were some Egyptians that were teachable. And moldable as God poured out his vengeance and judgment on Egypt. Whereby we, when we have a teachable spirit, we hear and do. So we're not merely hearers only, but we're also doers of the word. Did, did you hear what I just said? Or were you thinking about how, well, I don't ever boast in myself, Thomas. Or were you thinking about how you're going to safely light small explosives tonight to celebrate your independence? Listen. Be teachable. Be humble before God and His Word. I'm not saying merely listen to me. I'm speaking to you from the authority of God's Word. Don't do just as I say. Do as what God calls you to do. What if we... In having a humble, teachable spirit, we learned more about our dependence upon one another and God and Christ rather than our independence as a nation. And, and I'm not up here nation bashing or anything like that. I'm, I'm grateful to be an American. But there is a greater freedom, brothers and sisters. God has freed me from the pride of my own heart. 
God can free you from the pride of your own heart? What if, in a, with a teachable spirit, we actually disciplined ourselves more with Scripture memory? A deeper study on a particular doctrine. Here, I'll give you one. Ecclesiology. Look it up. Look it up. I have grown more in my understanding of ecclesiology and start in the starting of this church than I ever knew before. And I will never forsake such a doctrine. Because the life of the church is so vitally important to the life of the believer. Learn about it. Or what if, in a teachable spirit, we might take uh, to have or take time to know what it's going to take this afternoon at 3 o'clock to come out here and meet neighbors who do not know Jesus and get into gospel conversations with them. That's what a humble, teachable heart looks like. Another way this text applies to us, also as we see in Pharaoh in the midst of the just judgment and punishment for his sin, he merely confesses his sin. Did you notice that in the story? I've sinned. Moses, I've sinned against you and the Lord. Go and ask him to relent and stop this nasty plague. We must note that confessing ourselves to be sinners does not equate to turning from our sin in repentance and clinging to God's promises that have their yes and amen in Jesus. I'm going to say that again, brothers and sisters. We must note that merely confessing ourselves to be sinners does not equate from turning from our sin in repentance and clinging to God's promises that have their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Often we sin. Often we confess to the Lord that we have sinned, or maybe even to a friend. Yet how often do we find ourselves in either of the next two positions? It's only been a couple of days. Or maybe if you really mustered up enough strength this time, a few weeks, and we're back before God and our friend confessing the same sin again. When we do this, we demonstrate that we've not truly, by the power of the Spirit, killed our sin. We continue to dabble with it, as though it's a thing to be played with, as though... Our sin is merely in our control. The most out of control and distorted you are is when you sin. When you rebel against God and his ways. Or we find ourselves begging God to take away a sin that seems to have its root, root deep in us. Because we keep sinning. We keep on in that besetting sin. Yes, we should pray to God to remove our sexual sin from us. We must pray to God to remove our pride from us. We must confess our continual overindulgence in one more piece of pizza, another hour of th or three of gaming, or just one more taste. However, we should also join God as Christ has called us to, to take radical steps to kill sin in us before it kills us. On, what does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 27? You have heard it said, and you shall not commit adultery. 
Sounds like the law in Exodus. We're getting there. But I say to you, Christ says that everyone who looks upon a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one member of your body than your whole body to be thrown into where? Hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members of your body than your whole body go into hell. And how we tempt and pain our Savior and the Spirit when we play with besetting sin as though we don't want to kill it. So what might cutting off our hand, what might these radical steps look like? Well, it might look like paying for and installing a program called Covenant Eyes on your phone to keep you away from one more click of pornography. I think it's only like $2.99, well worth the cost. It, it may look like dialing back the internet speed at your home so that lag makes you want to get some rest rather than one more game or binge watch one more episode on Netflix. Now, I know I've gone from talking about the text to getting in your lives. But that, what are we doing if we don't apply the text to our lives? What are we doing if we're not killing sin? What, if we, what are we doing if we pridefully think so highly of ourselves that we don't have to do anything but just rest in the grace of Jesus? That's taking advantage of the grace of Jesus. Yes, He is a graceful, mer graceful, merciful Savior, but He calls you to join Him in the allegiance with Him against the fight of sin in your life. So it may look like now buckle up, don't, don't come at me. It may look like you asking your friend or your spouse while removing the second bowl of ice cream from your hand, do you really want to take on that extra 500 calories today? Kill sin before it kills you, brother. Pharaoh, in conclusion, Pharaoh is prideful. What did we see in 9.17, look back there in 10.3. He will not humbly submit to God. He did not care about the economic impact of the hardness of his heart that it had on his people. He was fickle in thinking that he could barter with Moses about whether Israel or the children or the livestock could actually leave Goshen. And then he was utterly unreasonable in his resistance to God's call for his people to be released. God, in a magnificent display of his power over and against Pharaoh, Egypt's economic prosperity with hail and locust, shows himself to be the one worthy of their worship and their service. And then... Because of the stubbornness of Pharaoh's heart, he plunges Egypt, the counselors of Pharaoh, and even Pharaoh himself in what amounts to be a grave of dark isolation. Our God is a mighty God who justice, whose justice is perfect. He judges the heart of prideful men. 
He condemns those who will not yield to his ways and his promises with destruction, death, and darkness. And it will be felt. Make no mistake about it. Will you remain stubbornly prideful and unyielding to him? Or will you repent and flee to the God of mercy? Let us pray. Oh, Father God. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for being a merciful God who does not take pleasure in sending sinners to hell. God, you aim to spring every one of us. Your desire is that none would perish. Oh, God, may none in this room perish today. May they repent and believe and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And God, may we worship you as a mighty and powerful God, worthy of our service, worthy of our worship. And God, you are so worthy that we should not cease telling the story to our sons and grandsons, our daughters and granddaughters. Oh God, be with us today as we continue this wonderful and amazing story of your mighty justice. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Day in Exodus, we came face to face with the horrors of our sin and pride and the wonders of God's rich mercy to us in Christ. So we're going to sing that song again. His mercy is more, more than all of your sin, all of your wrongdoing, all of your pride. Flee to Christ today and find mercy. Please stand and sing with us.